millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an RNZ podcast. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balancerho. Later on in the show, we've another exciting catch-up with the kakapo files. But first up, new ways to record crime scenes. Kurt McManus is a forensic investigator at ESR, the Institute of Environmental Science and Research. Since 2012, ESR has laser-scanned more than 200 crime scenes, and I catch up with Kurt to find out what this involves and how it can help the police and juries in a trial. This is a laser scanner. It's a machine that we've been using for about six years at crime scenes. Essentially what it does is it, it records the crime scene in 3D. Instead of the old days where the officers used to get out there, take measures and, and measure everything, because obviously distances are quite important when it comes to court. This thing can do that for them and... At any stage, we can go back later on and go to anywhere on the crime scene that we've scanned and we can make those measurements. And Yeah, so I'm just getting it out to show you how it, how it runs. Great, so you've got your scanner yeah. sitting on a tripod. Yep, I'll turn this on. So a lot of the, the crime scenes we go to are in houses, so each, each room that they want to include in the, in the mapping, we, we have to put this in the centre of the room. It usually takes about four minutes or so and fires a laser out takes a big photograph, 360-degree photograph, um, colours it, all that sort of thing, makes it nice and visual for us. And then we have to move it around the scene so that the laser can actually see everything. So we only can hit one side of a maybe a couch, so we need to put it on the other side of the couch to get the rest of it, just to complete the picture. But, yeah, we can sometimes it can be sort of 50 scans, so it can take quite a while. Um, or it might just be a really small scene and it might only be a couple. But as you say, it's doing entire rooms, entire buildings. Yeah, it's, uh, the laser in it can actually fire out to about 70 metres, so it can go a long way. But we need to cover the whole scene. It's a lengthy process, but it's a really good process. It's important to capture a crime scene as it was when we arrived. So, so you've got to do this pretty early on in the process. Yeah, yep. as soon as we get to the crime scene, um, we, we'll talk to police, um, we'll take what information we need to, we'll put on the appropriate equipment, a police photographer will go through and take their photographs to record the scene, and then basically we'll go through and do this laser scanning. Because it's basically creating a 3D version of the scene, we can go back and we can stand in a position, we can look, see what perhaps a witness might have seen from that position, or we can do advanced techniques like 3D trajectory analysis. So what we do with that is one of our firearms scientists, they'll use trajectory rods, which they've used for many, many years, but we have adapted these, you can put these little small spheres on it, they're just polystyrene, they just slip over the rod, and what we can do then is we laser scan that and we take the data into software and we use the software to basically determine a point in space for where that rod is pointing. 
at one end of the rod and then at the other and we can draw a line so it basically shows where the bullets travelled through that crime scene or through that wall or whatever. Okay, so it's just a better way of visualising that. Yeah, it's a better way. You can go into court, you can show a jury a whole crime scene in 3D and then you can have all the trajectories and you can turn them on and turn them off and say these are where the shots possibly came from and yeah, who they might have been fired by and stuff like that. So yeah, so this is the scanner, it's, it's turned on now. We have a bunch of settings that we can choose depending on sort of how much detail we need and stuff like that. And then we just press play. And what it's going to do is it's just going to spin around and it's going to fire the laser out. And it can, it can fire a laser out approximately up to about a million points a second so it can collect a lot of data. Um, it's safe, so we're all right to look at it. We're not going to get any, any dangerous sort of lasers um, in the eye. So this is what it's doing at the moment. We're standing here, so we're going to be included in this particular scan. Normally you would remove yourself from the yes, room? Yes, yes. I mean, ideally, we, no one's in the room, and so we'll, we'll do our best to try and keep people out of it. Um, but, yeah, we will be, we'll, we'll be included in this data, so I'll be able to sort of take us out, which is good. So now it's just going to turn around, and it's going to start taking photographs, and that's quite quick too. And those photographs are then going to be taken in, and that's the colour from those is what, it's, what it's going to colour those that data point with. So what does it look like? What does it look like? Well, I'll show you. Moving so, to the computer? There's a number of different things that we can produce. Police might need a measurement from somewhere, so we'll go and take a measurement and we'll just give them, a, give them an image of that measurement. So that's, that's quite basic. There's a number of different applications that then we, we can then produce, something they can run in court or something that they might just want to use back at, at the station. Um, so one of these we call a, a scene to go and it allows us to move to those positions that we had the scanner. So where it is at the moment on the other side of this desk here, we could go to that position and look at, look at the data that was collected from there. So here you've got a, a map. You can look straight down on the crime scene, um, and we have the positions and the numbers where those scans were taken. I can click on those, and then I can click on a photograph, and I can look around the 360-degree photograph, just to see what was what was at that position. But what I can do is it's not just a photograph. Because we're collecting data, there's actually three-dimensional data behind that. So then I can go and make a measurement. And these things are incredibly accurate. They're, they're survey-grade scanners. So at 10 metres from the scanner, you can have an error about three millimetres. So it's, it's incredibly accurate and obviously far more accurate than somebody taking a tape measure and trying to, trying to measure that. So I'm just going to do a really quick uh, measurement here from this point down to this car, and it's just given me the measurement there of 2.8 metres. Very precise, very quick. Yeah, and because it's captured the whole scene, you don't know the information at the time. Something else might be required or you've got new information where you need to measure, so unless you're going to go and measure absolutely everything in a crime scene, this is obviously a lot, a lot more efficient. We can then go and we have a little button here called 3D, um, and we can look at the 3D data. So this is the this is what it did in the first point where it was running, spinning around, capturing the data with the laser. And I can just make sure that I've clicked the exact point that I want there in 3D space. So we can move from what we call node to node, which is basically from position to position that the scanner was, and we can walk through the crime scene effectively. Now the only thing with this this application here is we are restricted to sort of one position or the position of the scanner. Um, so there are other applications that we can produce um, that have sort of come along with updates and technology over the last six years. 
Um, and one of these here we, we call a, a 3D scene viewer. So I'm just going to launch that. This is displaying the whole point cloud now. I can move around in that position at any point and fly through the scene. So we should say that this scene is, is outside, you've got a building in it. Yeah, this is actually our crime scene house, um, our training house that we have at ESR. It was set up to sort of mimic a crime scene and sort of... And some mimic of the, the complexity of, of yeah. a crime scene. Yeah, um, so we've got a table knocked over here, some numbers in there which we'll put down for exhibits that we might find, drink bottles and stuff like that that have been used. Staining on the floor down here in the bedroom, this will be animal blood that we've used for training, and we've got a couple of shoe prints moving away. So that sort of mimics what we see at crime scenes. So the laser scanners basically captured all of that. We can see the stain on the floor, um, and I've embedded some results here. So it's just a link that I've embedded into the data, and that'll bring up a DNA profile. So if this was presented at court, we could say we come into the bedroom here, we've got a blood stain on the floor, the jury see where the blood stain is, and then we can click on a link and it'll bring up the, the scientist diagram of that blood staining and their interpretation. And I'll just jump into a base and luminol result. So you might have heard of luminol before, but we use... You better explain it to me. <laughs> so we use luminol. Um, it's a chemical that we use to detect low levels of blood, so if there's been a clean-up or something like that, or if we're trying to follow a trail that somebody's walked through a bit of blood and just... We can't see it with the naked eye, so um, we, we use a chemical that we spray at night. And we have the photographer set up, and we basically spray it, and they capture the chemiluminescence that comes off it. And in here we have a basin with a photograph attached to it. So the same with the result that I had before. I've got the photograph that was taken from that basin so you can see the luminal result. What other tools have you got at your disposal? So we do. We do actually have a lot of other tools. Over the past sort of few years we've, we've been doing some work with a process called photogrammetry. We can now put in hundreds and hundreds of photographs and these software programs can actually turn the pixels in each of those photographs into three-dimensional data. So like a laser scanner is actually picking up a point in space with a laser, the software is, is using the position of those pixels and the movement of the camera that's taking those photographs to create a 3D version of, of the scene that it's, it's basically taking photographs of. Um, so one area that we, we identified a few years ago that would be really helpful is, is large outdoor crime scenes. So currently with a laser scanner, a big scene outdoors could be four or five hours work, maybe even longer, maybe days work. So there is a potential there that if you could take a new technology like drones, um, they take photographs, if you could put a drone up and fly it over that area in a particular manner and put it into one of these software programs, can it create a 3D model that would be sort of of high enough quality for us to use with the laser scan data and fill in that data basically instead of going and laser scanning it? And this is? This is an example, yep. So what I've done here is I've actually, again, just created a mock scene down here at our, in one of our car parks, put two cars next to each other as if they've almost had a, a crash, and we've got a few items out the back of a car and a, a, we've got a fake body on the ground there. And this was to test how good the data would be if I could detect small things on the ground. And then I've just created a, a video basically flying through this data. So that's video, but it's just made from your still photos? Yeah, it's video and it's made from still photos. And I think sometimes 
you'd think, well, then why don't you just fly the drone because that create, captures video. But if we capture the scene in 3D, like I mentioned earlier, you can go back to any part of that scene and you can perhaps create a fly-through from a different angle or, or look at something from a different angle. It's, it's not fixed. So unless you're going to fly every single, every single angle in that, uh, in that scene with a drone, it's great for overall visual sense drones, but we can go a step further because drones have GPS. The software can use it and it can scale the data. So it's actually scaling it to the real world. Slightly less accurate than our laser scanner, but still pretty impressively accurate. This would really lend itself to virtual reality as well. Yeah, so we've been doing quite a bit on VR as well over the last uh, short while. Forensics is a perfect industry for it because we're capturing these scenes in 3D there is a lot of potential there for if, if you can put someone back into the crime scene and actually stand in that position, not only for investigators like ourselves or police to, to jog their memory or look at something or just get a better sense of that crime scene, but potentially one day we could be seeing its use in court where instead of having a scene visit that they sometimes do with jury members or take them out to the crime scene, Obviously that is years later, so the crime scene isn't as it was. It could be entirely different. So there is a potential that if we get around a few logistical issues at the moment with the technology of it's all being attached to cords or computers and trying to put sort of 20 people into a headset at one time. But as soon as that sort of logistical problems are ironed out, over the next few years the technology is going to improve we might see it. We might see the sort of stuff used in, in courtrooms. And we've got the data. We have, we have all of the, the information that we can put into, the, into these VR headsets. All they're really doing from a technology point of view is projecting the data that we have on screen into eyepieces, into screens in front of your eyes and allowing you to sort of move around using tracking and stuff like that. So it's, it's quite a basic conversion from the data that we have to VR. But it's, it's not only for, for court and stuff like that, training, it's going to be uh, really beneficial. I can see a big advantage being you've got the detectives who might work on a crime scene at the time, mm. but somebody else coming in down the track can put themselves back in that crime scene and walk themselves through it, just like those original detectives did, but yeah. in, in the virtual reality world. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they can, they can look at the notes that might have been taken at the time, and they can, they can learn from those scenes and how different every crime scene is. We know that it's still got a wee way to go, the technology, and I think a lot of industries know that, but they also know that the potential is massive. Thanks, Kurt. That's Kurt McManus, a forensic investigator at ESR. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, it's time to catch up with the Kākāpō Files, bringing us news from the record-breaking breeding season of the endangered flightless night parrot. I spent last week in Fiordland and was very excited when I got a chance to call in at Anchor Island in Dusky Sound to catch up with some of the Kākāpō team there. Rangers Sarah Larkham and Brodie Philp were at the hut when I went ashore. Now, Brodie, I've had you on the podcast before, but it was on the end of a phone, and so it's really exciting to be here in person. Yeah, it's great to have you out to our workplace rather than just on the end of a mobile line. <laughs> yeah, you guys are pretty remote here. Remind us where exactly you are in the world. Basically, Anchor Island is located kind of on the far western end of Fiordland, so basically on the western side of this island it's just open ocean from there on in. 
and I've been on a boat that's been a bit south of here for the last few days and I can report that the seas out there are pretty big at the moment. Yeah, it does get some wild weather through here. We've had all four seasons today with some hail, rain and some sunshine as well. Now, I've talked to Andrew and Daryl on the podcast before and one of the recurring things that comes up is the weather and the fact that it's quite wet out here a lot of the time. Yeah, well, you can see around us there's quite a bit of mud just where we're standing and then the trails from here are all kind of up and down hills. So, yeah, it's very, very wet and very muddy. What's the forest we're looking at? It looks beautiful and lush with all that rain. Yeah, so around around the hut there are some rimu trees, as you can see. There's some, some quite larger ones around. And then you've kind of got a mixture of um, some beech and uh, some yellow silver pine a bit, bit further up on the hills there. Now, the other islands I've been on, there's so much fruit around at the moment. There's rimu fruit just lying all over the forest floor. Yeah, we kind of had our peak here with the rimu maybe about a month ago, and now it's kind of we're starting to find a little bit less. But yesterday when I was over the eastern side of the island, there's still quite a bit over there. But sadly, that's not where all the females are. So whereabouts on the island of the girls? Uh, most of them are all on the west side. So the east side is the really, really steep side of the island. And then most of the girls are, are out west, kind of closer to the coastal areas. And the vegetation varies a bit more over there, whereas on the east side, it's kind of all, all pretty similar up the tops. So how's it going? Yeah, it's going really well. We've just about 10 days ago, we had our last egg of the season, or what we think is our last egg hatch. And now we've got a lot of our chicks um, starting to fledge. So moved into a different transition of the breeding season. So those last eggs were Stella's, weren't they? Yes, last eggs were Stella's eggs. All doing fine so far. They're out in the nest. They're very, very far walk from the hut. But, oh yeah, they all seem to be doing fine so far. So each day here, what do you usually do? What's an average day? It's actually quite varied at this stage of the year. So right now with the chicks starting to fledge and leave the nest, we've got a lot of day work going out and taking blood samples from them and giving them vaccinations as well as putting their transmitters on so we don't lose them. And then at night, we've still got to go out and check um, the young chicks that we have in the nest and do health checks on them as well. So, yeah, lots of day work starting to pop up, but then still the usual night work as well. So how long is the season going to go on for you? At the moment, it seems like it won't stop. We're not sure the other day we actually had on our data system pop up that Tafuri and Nyatapa mated again. So that would be our third round here. So we're not sure. It was quite a short mating, so it could have just been a bit of a fight. But, yeah, we'll monitor Fury's activity just in case she does happen to nest again, which would mean the season might be quite long. Gracious. So Solstice made it a third time. This is turning out to be the most incredible breeding season. Yes, we are, we are breaking records uh, all over the place, and it doesn't seem like the birds want to stop. The males up on the hill, when I was up the other night, they were still booming away, and around their bowls they're still doing lots of grubbing and keeping them maintained so yeah we don't really don't really know they're kind of rewriting the books for us here are the males doing any scrapping i gather they were doing a bit of fighting on whenua ho and they had to send arab off for a bit of medical treatment yeah there's a there's a few um, times when you walk around at night you hear a couple of the boys going at it and yesterday we went and caught wahopai up on the summit just to check him out because his activity was quite low and he had a few fight signs like cuts and things on his on his feet but yeah he's doing okay Fantastic. Well, let's go and grab Sarah and I'll have a chat to Sarah as well. And then maybe you can take me for a little walk. Yes, a very short walk. And Sarah, I'm a Kākāpō ranger here on Anchor Island. Well, welcome to the Kākāpō Files. It's an absolute treat to be here on Anchor Island. It's a bit different out here. Yeah, it's, it's a bit more rugged than Whenuaho. I'm pretty sure we get a fair bit more rain than they do over there. Uh, I've heard that from Andrew and Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> Must be true then. So does that rain have much of an impact on the kākāpō? 
Yeah, it's a major source for us of worry with the nests. So we put a lot of effort into setting up really safe, dry nests for all the birds. We put tarps over all of them. We often do a bit of maintenance, digging drainage channels and putting in bits and pieces to prevent the nests from flooding. And in the hut... And, and the sort of annex out the front where you take all your wet gear off and don't wear it inside, there's some dirt drying out. Do you want to tell me the story of that? <laughs> yes, we're currently collecting soil to dry out here at the hut and then cart over to nests on the far side of the island because we're a bit concerned that the floor of the nest over at Stella's is getting a bit damp, which could cause issues for the chick. So we really want to make sure that the chick's nice and safe and dry. So she's still got her, one of her little chicks? She does, yeah. She was just given a chick within the last week. I'm just sort of sitting here kind of smiling at this idea of carrying dirt around Fiordland, but <laughs> that's what you have to do to try and keep those chicks healthy. Have you had problems with dampness and nests with the chicks? We've been pretty good this year. I know back in 2016 some of the chicks out here died in flooding, um, so we've been really conscious of that and been keeping a close eye on any signs of dampness in the nests. But yeah, within the last week we've had one nest get a bit damp and this could have been a cause of illness in the chick, so we're really conscious of that. So what's up with the chick? It got flown off the island and it's currently, I think it's up at Massey being treated. Whose chick is that? I think it was one of the Waikawa chicks. <laughs> They've all been a little bit special. <laughs> it's all becoming a bit of a blur. There's so many of them. <laughs> there are. We're up to 30 chicks on the island at the moment. Now tell me about some of the records here this year. So who's laid the most eggs? Well, we had a record for egg cannon given to Ra, who had a total of nine eggs this season. Nine eggs. So she obviously had one of the five egg clutches. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the other five egg clutch was Jim, which was a bit unexpected. I went there to pull in what I thought would be the last two infertile eggs and found that she'd laid a third. Did you award any other awards to the kakapo? Well, the most fertile eggs went to Waikawa this year. Yeah, she was a very successful female. But you had some who didn't manage to produce any fertile eggs. Yeah, we've had quite a number of girls that have gone to a lot of effort. Unfortunately, not any reward, but now they can serve as foster mums for the rest of the chicks on the island. Now, I gather we can go for a little walk. We can. We have a nest very close by to the hut with two chicks who are uh, just kind of on the brink of fledging, just venturing outside the nest for the first time at the moment. So we can go for a wander up there and see how they're doing. Fantastic. But just before we head up the track... So I'm on Anchor Island in Fjordland and it is hailing like nothing else but luckily we hadn't left the hut yet Lovely weather you've got here Brodie well, Like I said, four seasons in a day Just a wee hailstorm mm, Yeah, they, they tend not to last long but they are frequent After a couple of minutes, the hail stops and we head outside again. Typical sound of anchor on is the squelching of your boots. We quickly arrive at a nest in a hollow tree, sheltered by a tarpaulin. (laughs) 
So who's that very protective mother, Brody? Uh, in the nest at the moment, we had Yasmin with her two chicks. So whose chicks does she have? Are they her chicks or does she have someone else's? No, she didn't manage to have any chicks of her own. So she's a good mum? Yes, she's a very good mum. The two chicks look like an adult at the moment. They're fully grown. How far are they moving at night when they leave the nest? Uh, these particular two might go, you know, 15, 20 metres from the nest. Um, we've had some other ones start to go, like, you know, 50, 50, 60 metres. But they're still coming back to the nest, so that means they're not officially fledged yet? Uh, they do spend the nights outside, some of them, so I think that technically means they're fledged, but they still know where their nest is. They're so big and grown up. Yeah, it's amazing how fast they grow once, once they get going. So she feeding them just on removed fruit? Uh, Yasmin's actually doesn't mind the supplementary food, so she has a hopper set up not far from here, and she goes and she eats that, and she obviously eats natural foods like the remo and a few of the other fruits we have at the moment. How much are our chicks weighing? These guys, I'm not sure exactly. They're somewhere between one and a half and two kilos each, and she weighs maybe just over, just over one kilo. We should probably leave her, I think. Yeah, she, I think she was happy for the chat, though. <laughs> nice to meet you. So what are you two up to for the rest of the day? Hopefully I'll be able to get out on the boat a bit later to pick up some of the rest of the team who have been out on the hill in the hail all afternoon. <laughs> it would be nice to give them a ride home. <laughs> and then I'm off tonight to uh, Stella's Nest to do some nest modifications because it's a bit unstable and a bit wet in there, so just to make things a bit better for the chick. So what's the building program? We put in what we call an A-frame, which is kind of like a little triangle hut into where the nest cavity is, and then we try and make that nice and stable and put all dry soil in there to kind of mimic the natural nest, but just something we can manage a bit more easily than a, than a natural nest. Well, good luck with the building. Thank you. Thank you very much, you guys. Lovely to have you on the Kakapo Files. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to have you out here. Yeah, great to have you out on Anchor Island. And a big thanks to Doc Kakapo Rangers, Sarah Larkham and Brodie Philp, and to Kākāpō mum, Yasmin. You can catch up with plenty more Kākāpō news in episode 17 of the Kākāpō Files podcast, Glad and Sad Kākāpō Tidings. A brief update on numbers for you, though. With the sad loss of the female hockey, the adult Kākāpō population now stands at 146 birds. All the Kākāpō eggs have hatched, unless Tifri Springs a late surprise and there are currently 77 chicks alive. 73 of those chicks have been sexed, and there are 38 males and 35 females, and 16 of the chicks have fledged and left their nest. And that's all we've time for tonight. If you'd like to listen to these stories again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll also find all the episodes of the Elemental and Kākāpō Files podcasts there too. If you'd like to get in touch, on Twitter and Facebook we are RNZ Science and our email address is ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.